today's Tanya class, we're going to, God willing, we're going to start at least, we'll see if we finish the full first chapter of Shari Yechavimuna, which is this gate of God's unity and belief. Uh, before we do that, I just want to recap what well, we learned the last few lessons, the key points, and what's leading us into this chapter. And I may give a few, may need to pause a few times for some background information on what we're going to be learning about today. So in the intro to the, the section, there are a few points that the Alter Rebbe made in the Tanya as a prelude to the study. And then the first crucial point that he made and a lot of these points, as I mentioned when we learned the introduction, are discussed in a lot more length in the first part of the Tanya. Um, but the first point that he made was, is that our do's and our do nots, what motivates or what inspires someone to do something or not to do something, is in some form or level a sense of passion or love or drawing towards something is usually what makes us do something. And it could be in a very subtle sub-level or so on and so forth, a very overt, or it's a sense of either awe, respect, trepidation, fear, that form of emotion which holds us back from doing things. And that, again, it's either it could be in a very overt conscious space or very subconscious, that emotion that's holding us back from doing things. And with that said, if one wants to be in service of God, then one has to build within themselves whatever level possible a sense of love or awe of God in order for them to do what God wants or refrain from doing what God doesn't want us to do. Which leads into the second point is how does one develop those emotions or more specifically, how could the Torah even give us a commandment to love God? If love is a something which emotions are usually something you either have or you don't have. And our basic answer was, is that one can develop a love for God by studying and contemplating and learning about God. So the mitzvah is not to love, but the mitzvah is to do within our means to develop, to study, to learn about God in order to gain that love and fear of God, which led to our next point, which we spoke more about this past week. And that is in our growth in life, and as we develop and over time, hopefully our growth in life, our love, our understanding, our relationship with God develops as well. And what makes us unique as individuals is our ability for growth, is the terminology we use is that people in this world, we are walkers, travelers, which means we are constantly moving. Part of walking or traveling as opposed to be what's considered the angels which are standing in one place and standing is a lot more of a secure position to be in when one is standing their center of gravity is a lot more stable when one is in a mood of walking it could very easily be we're in a less of a stable position and anything can derail us or when we in our moments of growth we put ourselves in which means two things. A, in our moments of growth, we put ourselves in vulnerable positions. When we challenge our status quo, we're in a vulnerable position and we're trying to grow. And also, life could send us all types, life in general, our growth is compromised of sometimes challenges or hardships, which we need to overcome, which we're in a vulnerable position. And what Datanya says over here, while yes, eventually in our walk, we'll reach a higher stage, 
But in that moment of vulnerability, sometimes our overt love and or the passion of the emotions of our connection, our relationship with God may be hard to feel in the moment. And at those times, it's crucial to fall back on the core fundamentals of our belief and understanding of God, which was the basis for the relationship that we have. And that could hold us through and make sure that our vulnerable moments don't become falls, but only become springboards to greater growth. And on that basis, we're going to focus primarily in this chapter more on reaffirming or better understanding that base relation understanding of what God is and his relationship with us, and which will then be a springboard for other parts of Tanya where it discusses a lot more and giving tools, which in the introduction, we got a little glimpse of some of the meditations that he, and tools, but and that will be the basis for the tools and growing the more emotional side. So with that said, we're going to skip over here, jump into chapter one. And as you'll see, perhaps chapter one will be a little bit more of a flowing conversation as the introduction was, as he's not, he's kind of more or less keep on one topic throughout. So we're going to delve into chapter one and the conversation throughout the chapter is going to be, uh, as we said, building our understanding of God and his relationship with us and what it means when we believe in God. In the Hebrew, this is kind of an intro paragraph to the chapter. So over here, this is the intro paragraph, the gate of unity and faith. This work is a gateway to understand a minute fraction of the Zohar statement that the verse Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, is Yehuda Ilah, higher unification, and the phrase blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever is Yehuda Tatal, lower unification. So let me just paraphrase what's give a little background so we better understand this text itself. Um, in Judaism, there's a mitzvah to read the prayer of the Shema prayer every morning and every evening. And perhaps the most well-known Jewish prayer is the Shema. You know, you could have people from all different Jewish walks of life. They may not know much Hebrew in the synagogue, but most people, and I can't say for everyone, but most people are familiar with the Shema prayer, Hero Israel. And the reason why this is such a fundamental prayer because it's a statement and affirmation of our belief in God. So if the core base of anything in, in general with religion or connection with God is an affirmation of the belief in God, that's the basis for doing anything. If we're doing anything for God, it's a statement that we believe in God. Now, if one's familiar with the Shema prayer, from Deuteronomy itself is the verse Shema, and the following paragraph afterward, Bahafta, love your God, they're conjoining verses in the Torah. The custom is, is that we throw in a verse in between the verse of Baruch Shem, which is not from that section of the Torah, it's from a different section. The reason why and the background, why the Talmud, halachically, why we add that verse in the Shema is because the first time the Shema was said was actually when Jacob, who was also known as Israel, was on his deathbed. He called in his children and he told the children, wanted to affirm, ask them, are you all in seed? Are you all, you know, one with God? And, and you know, okay. you all believe in God. And they answered Shema Yisrael, hear Israel, hear our father. 
that the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And Jacob responded to them with the verse, Baruch Shem Kvod And we're told as well that the angels in heaven, every time a Jew says the Shema, responds with this verse, Baruch Shem. And that's why on Yom Kippur, most of the time throughout synagogue, we recite this verse quietly. On Yom Kippur, the day which we're like angels, we recite this verse out loud in synagogue as well, um, because we're then on the status of angels. Now, all this background, this little just background information where these two verses come together. The Zohar says a very interesting statement. The Zohar says that both of these verses are symbolizing the same thing, but from a different perspective. The reason why we recite both, if they're saying the same thing, because Shema Yisrael comes from a higher perspective, Baruch Shem comes from a lower perspective. And in chapter 7, we'll revisit this in a little more depth, how we know one is a higher perspective, one's a lower perspective. But I want to explain to you what the terminology Yichudah means or Yichudah Tatam means. And I'll start that with a Hasidic story I may have shared once before. This background of the story goes is that in the beginning of the Hasidic movement, a lot of Lithuanian Jewry was very hesitant about what the Hasidim were about. And there were different Hasidim used to travel to meet and, and to, you know, as ambassadors of the Hasidic community to try to garnish some support or understanding of what the Hasidic movement was. There was one fella who was traveling. He came to a town which was extremely, extremely opposed to the Hasidic movement, and they would in no way, shape, or form allow a chassid or if they knew a person was a chassid to speak or or be given honor in the synagogue so this chassid figured he'll take a stealth movement and he began he walked in and the rabbi the congregation asked him are you do you know what do you think of the chassidim and he said well the chassidim only think of this themselves whereas the lithuanian jury only thinks about god all right, the rabbi was impressed, and he let the guy participate in everything. He allowed him to speak, and he left a very strong impression. When he was ready to leave, this chassid turned to, you know, went to visit the rabbi on his way out, and he said, I want to clarify my initial statement. And he said as follows, what I meant to say, why you, the Lithuanians, think about God all the time is because for the Lithuanian, their existence, your existence is guaranteed. The whole day you're wondering, does God also exist or not? Whereas the Chassid, they know God exists. The whole day they're thinking, do I exist as well? So is two different ways of how to look at things. What's your main reality? In understanding God's unity, that God is one with creation and creation is not a contradiction to God, which I'll explain that in a second. There's one way of looking at things where God is, God is guaranteed. The question is, how does the world fit in God's realm? Or are we looking at it as I know I exist? So how does my exist? How does God fit in my existence? All right. The I'm trying to think of a good parable for for this as well. I mean, it, you kind of have this in if you have a math expert, let's say, comes into a elementary school. Let's put it this way, right? So the math expert's trying to give elementary school kids a glimpse into advanced mathematics so for the teacher their perspective advanced mathematics is something that is very familiar with them and they're trying the teacher the entire time they're teaching is trying to make this idea 
that's a little above the kid's head relevant to the kids. Whereas the kids, for them, this whole idea concept is very foreign and they're trying to perceive something which is beyond their understanding. So over here to Yechudei La, Yechudei Tata, is two different perspectives and realms and how you could bring about, understand the unity of God. So one is looking more from God's realm. So God's perspective of things, God is, you know, it's a question, how does the world exist? Whereas from our perspective, usually we'll start with an understanding, trying to figure out how God fits in our lives. So that's the representation. And we'll be this will be revisited in chapter seven as we'll pick up back on this idea, um, defining exactly how the messaging in Shema Yisrael is more of a top-bottom approach, whereas the Baruch Shem Kvod Malchuso is more of a bottom-up approach. Okay? Now, a key concept which we're already alluding to over here is throughout this uh, throughout this section of the Shariyich of Amuna, a primary sub-question which is going to be over here is understanding how the unification of God, God and creation coexist. Why is that even a question? It's very simple. Or the question is more, how do we feel as independent beings in God's presence? In Judaism, when we use the term God, at no point of time, and this is not addressed even in the Tanya over here, because this is considered Judaism 101, at no point of time is God a being or entity of limited sort or fashion. There's no God, man in the sky with a long white beard or a cane or anything short. There isn't. It's not a figure in any way, shape, or form. God in Judaism is the ultimate being that predates everything. Nothing created God because God is the ultimate existence. And nothing can detract from God because God is beyond existence. And in this, before everything existed, there was God. Because God is not defined, limited by existence. And if you want to do it in very simple terms, if you ever, you, you know, in our reality, there's always something that comes before something else. So whatever pre predated everything else, that's God. So God is everything and everywhere. And yet, we're told in the Torah that God created something. God created a world. Now, if there is no being outside God, what does it mean when we use the term creation? How could something be in something that is everything? So the question is, are we really our own existence? Is our existence a figment of our imagination? Are we an expression of God somehow? How does it work that we exist within God, and yet we don't necessarily see God in our day-to-day -day reality if we don't look for it? And how does me being and feeling independent not infringe on God's existence where God is everything and nothing can be outside God? All right? I'm not sure if I'm using two philosophical terms over here or not, or making it uh, understood, but that's the basic premise underlining question which will be addressed somewhat in this uh, throughout throughout this uh, book. So then let's jump into it. Let's begin let's begin this journey with the Tanya as the Tanya itself um, chooses to do so. So he begins as follows, quoting another verse in Deuteronomy: hayom, The Torah gives us a commandment: You shall know this day and restore it to your heart that the Lord He is the God in the heavens above and upon the earth below. There is no other. So the verse requires explanation. Would he really be inclined to think there is another God dwelling in the water below, 
the earth that the Torah had to warn so emphatically, restore to your heart. The word, the terminology via daita, you shall know this day, and restore to your heart is a double emphasis on how important this next statement is going to be. And what is God, Moses telling the Jewish people? Know today and really contemplate that God is the God in the heaven above, and even below the earth there is no one else. Now, how many of us were concerned about another God being in the belly of the earth until we started watching Marvel and DC movies that there's all types of gods hiding underground, right? Like, what is the overemphasis of the existence of a God below earth that the Torah is mentioning over here? And even if the, if the statement that the Torah wants to say that there's only one God in the heavens above and the earth below... So make a clear statement. You should know there's only one God. What is restored to your heart? Which is an overemphasis as if this is something that we're struggling with immensely that the Torah needs to reiterate. So over here, the Tanya begins with a general, and this again, that we're going to break down this idea over the next few chapters. So over here, he's going to give us the premise on the idea that we're going to elaborate on. So the idea is as follows. It is written... In Psalms, forever, Lord, does your word stand in the heavens. And this is probably something which you may have heard of the statement, God's word lasts forever. And what the Tanya is going to do over here is take from Hasidic teachings, this statement or the concept that God's words last forever and take it from a hypothetical theological statement to make it a very real practical statement. And how he does that as follows by quoting the first Hasidic master, the Baal Shem Tov, a blessed memory. Interpreted this as referring to your word. What is your word? What is the word of God? The word that God spoke at creation. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the water, and so on and so forth. These words and letters stand forever in the firmament of the heavens and are clothed in all the firmaments forever in order to sustain them. So, again, what is the statement, and I'll elaborate on this a little bit. When God said there should be a world, those words didn't cease to exist. God said there should be a world, and those words, there shall be, continue to run constantly so that there should continue to be a world. God didn't just say the words world, let their world be, and the energy to create the world created a world, and the world now operates on its own. That energy, those words from, the, from what God said by creation constantly continue to keep creation in existence, to sustain them. As it is written, the word of our God will stand forever, and his words will live and endure forever. So we're again, what statements from Isaiah and like, which normally we would read it and just mean to say that God's word is, you know, powerful, and, you know, God's word, when he says something, can't be retracted. The, over here, we're adding another dimension to it. It means God's words, literally, the, the energy, the synergy of the words, the letters, that God spoke, continue to constantly be running and operational. And a parable for this would be energy or machinery, anything that we know that works on energy. When you turn on your gas grill, right? You didn't just turn on the gas grill for that second. Until you turn it off, there's gas constantly running. The second your gas stops running, there's no more fire. And the same thing is with anything that plugs in or runs on battery. Your cell phone, as much as you could carry it, maybe if you have a good battery life, you can last the full day, right? But it's really not 
ever independently operating without energy. The second the battery dies, your phone stops operating. So the same thing is with creation. Creation wasn't just an act in which God created the world and now the world can exist or the existence of the world is standing on its own. No, creation is a constant occurrence and where the energy for creation has to constantly be pumped into creation for creation to exist. And why is that? So over here he continues. For if the letters of the utterance would withdraw for an instant, God forbid, and return to their source, the entire heavens would literally become absolute nothingness as though they had never existed at all. Actually, like their state before the utterance, let there be a firmament. Creation as we'll elaborate on this a lot more in chapter two, why it, why this is, but the creation of the world, like I said, is very similar to the energy in the in the the battery, the energy in the battery, or so on and so forth, or the the gas for the grill. Creation is a novelty. It's not something that stands on its own. Just like fire can't exist without a tangibility, the world wasn't built from raw material. The world was rebuilt from God. So for ex existence at all times to be present, it needs that constant input of the energy that created it on the onset. And so it is with all creations in all the worlds, in both the higher and the lower worlds. There isn't any form of creation that's immune to the need of God's energy, whether it be a spiritual being, a more material being, an angel, a physical person, all realms and all forms of consciousness, being that they are a creation from God, need the energy that's creating them to constantly imbue them with life. If for any second the energy was pulled out, they would cease to exist and operate. And even and this is even with regard to this physical earth and the realm of actual inmate in in inanimate matter, if the letters of the ten utterances through which the earth was created during the six days of creation would withdraw from it for an instant, God forbid, it will literally revert to absolute nothingness as if it were before the six days of creation. So I want to reiterate over here. We're talking, usually when we talk about soul or in our body, we speak about our consciousness, right? So we understand and we see that with ourselves, with live animate, with, with, the, with things which have life whether it's a human being or even a blade of grass, the second it's life source, there's, there's a time where it's alive and there's a time where it's not alive, right? A body, there's when it's animate and then when the person passes away, the body is lifeless. And a blade of grass too, there's when it's nice and green and then when it loses its life and it's brown and there's no, or a flower or plant where it's lost its life. So what we're talking over here is more, it's not just, we need God, we need a life force for something to be animate. But even the physical existence, even a stone or a rock, something which has no animation to it, and it just exists because it exists. And even the body after the soul, the consciousness leaves it, there is a life force keeping that physicality also in existence. And that's the and if that life force would stop to be constantly being put in for that physical being for our physical presence to be alive as well, it would cease to exist entirely as if it was never created. And with this introduction, we could better understand an Ariz the Arizal, which is one of the form one of the famed Kabbalists, 
This is what the Arizal stated, that also actual inanimate entities such as stones, soil, and water have a soul and spiritual life force that consists of the letters of speech compromising the ton utterance enclosed in the inanimate entities. These letters grant life and existence to the inanimate, bringing it into existence from the absolute nothingness preceding the six days of creation. So like I stated before, creation is a very unique thing. Most, and this, again, we'll discuss this in more detail in chapter two, but most things that we work, most things that we see made are made from pre-existing items. If I shared this joke, I'm sorry if I'm sharing it again, but there's the famous story of the scientist, which finally uh, turned to God and said, listen, God, it's time for you to take a vacation. We figured out how to... Um, as we've already doing now, we figured out how to create from DNA. We're able to clone people, meat, all types of stuff. We don't need, you know, you could take a break. We figured life out. So God says, that's amazing. Let me see how you do it. So the scientist that bends down, starts grabbing some sand from the earth, digging some earth from the ground and says, God says, wait, 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 stop a second. Go find your own resources. Don't use any of mine. Right? So the creation or most things that we know are really re retooling resources that already exist. We don't really see a real creation of something from absolutely nothing. The world, there was no Home Depot that God ordered supplies to build the world. So the creation of the world is something from absolutely nothing. So its existence doesn't have the same absolute existence on its own like a table does when it's formed from when it's formed from wood. So therefore, in order for our world to exist, even the physical side, the energy that made it come to be to begin with needs a constant push. Like I said, just like the fire, which won't exist without the gas. So with this said, the 10 utterances, the speech of God, the word of God that came, brought things into existence wasn't just a one-time statement. It's something that is constantly present and constantly imbuing and infusing energy, not only in the conscious part of creation, but also in the physical part of creation in order for creation to exist. What's interesting, and he discusses it over here, and he probably does a better job because I, I can't say that I did the best in biology and science in school. That wasn't exactly my expertise. Um, the But if you look under a microscope... Just to give you a little bit of understanding how the the what looks as a solid is really only an illusion to our eyes. If you look under a microscope, even you take a solid piece of wood, you'll see that it's a bunch of small molecules moving together in a very steady pattern to give us the illusion of something solid. But there isn't, and as we explore more and more, we're discovered there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot more that meets the eyes when we look at stuff. So in this same as well, well, we usually look at the world and physicality as this very physical presence. The truth is that it's made up at its core is a energy of God. And kind of like we're, we're studying the atom and so on and so forth, we're learning that more and more that there's a core element that keeps everything in existence that's not made up of multiple parts. So with existence as well, while every we it's sometimes we it's hard to peel away the layers because our we see what our eyes tells us to see, and our eyes plays all types of games as 
um, as an illusionist knows very well and exploits all the tricks that our eyes plays on us so that they can pull tricks on us because they know what the eye will skip and not allow us to see when we're looking at different visuals. So when we look at the world, where it's easy to see the physicality of the world, but the truth is that the world is a very, at its core, it's based on a constant need of energy to keep it in existence. So the decor of everything is really a godly presence, which is keeping everything to be. Now, over here in the last little bit of in the, the second half of this chapter, well, maybe we'll start it. We'll maybe come back here a little bit next so we can see how far we get. Um, it deals with a little technical part of what he's saying. And that is, we just said that from the 10 utterances that God said in the Torah of creation, all of creation continues to, um, has energy to exist. So he asks a very simple question. There's a very limited amount of things which are actually described or spelled out in the 10 utterances of creation. So how do you have from those 10 utterances an energy to create all all types of life form and everything? For example, he mentions over here, although the term stone is not mentioned in the 10 utterances of the Torah. So where does the and where does how does a stone be created from the ten from those from those ten statements? There is no word stone. I want to take a pause here. There's actually a book I think called Letters of Kabbalah or something. I forgot the name right now, which goes into detail and it's it's a class for its own, not at all for what we're ta talking over here. But in in Kabbalah, each letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a very is is the shape the and everything about it has different messages and tones about the energy that it has. The letter Aleph is two yuds connected by a line. Vav is a sign of drawing things down. You know, the shape of each letter has a different semblance of the energy that it carries with it. And therefore, when we talk about names in Hebrew, or we say that Adam named everything in the world, it's not just he was, you know, trying to think, Sometimes, like, you know, we're told that we have prophecy when we name our kids. Um, but sometimes it seems like people are just pulling names from randomly out of rabbit's hats. What was unique about that Adam gave names to all creations is that he gave the appropriate name with the in Hebrew that represented the energy that helped that 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 speak of the core essence of that being. So. When we're talking about, so over here, this is where we're going over here, the names, the letters of the creation, of the letters of the formed creation are, if they're the energy that are forming all life, we would think that there would be a direct correlation between the letters or the words in mentioned in the 10 state utterances of creation to all beings. And over here we're saying that that's not true. I believe there might even be one or two letters in the Hebrew alphabet which are not actually mentioned in the 10 utterances. So how do we have the life force for all creation? So over here he brings us a Kabbalistic idea, which is a little technical. And the basic idea is, um, if you're a coding expert, is basically you have to understand the code behind the 10 command, the 10 utterances of creation. So he goes over here. Nevertheless, life force is channeled into stone through a combination and substitution of the letters. So this is, again, I'm not going to dwell long over here. There's in Kabbalah, there's multiple different ways 
of intertwining letters through whether it's numerical value of closeness and letters and so on and so forth, um, we're, you may see one, I, I don't want to use the term because it gets very much misused by other people, but there's the term of Bible code, but then <laughs> that's very easily misconstrued by people which don't really know what they're talking about. So you need to make sure you're getting it from an accurate source. But over here within Sefer Yitzira in Kabbalah discuss about which are transmuted through 231 gates forward and backward and stayed in Sefer Yitzira. Now, 231 gates are actually 20, 231 unique um, compilations that we can make from each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. There is multiple ways too. But basically, you have to understand the source code behind the t- uh, 10 utterances of creation. And even though it may not explicitly say the word stone, evan, aleph, vet, nun, in the in the ten utterance of creation, but through understanding the the coding and the correlation between one letter and the next, and taking from different places, from everything in creation has a source code in the ten utterances of creation. Okay, um, we're 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 not at all on this stage of Kabbalah to go into in depth how this works, but this is the principle. So the basic idea is it may not say it spelled out, but within the ten utterances of creation, you have the you you have the energy just has to be compiled in the right way, put it in the right funnel, and you'll find the energy for stone. So by going through the different formulations or the two hundred thirty one gates, eventually until they're de- they're develop they're devolves from the ten utterances, and it's derived from them the combination of letters forming the name stone. And that is the life force of the stone. The same applies to all creations in the universe. And what we says, it's interesting what's understood over here too. It's not just stone in general, but every single stone has its own unique code. Kind of like if anyone does coding, there's a general formulation for for, uh, what a stone looks like. But then each stone either has its unique place or its unique shape or so on and so forth. So it's not just the word Evan is found or stone is found within the 10 utterances of creation, but also the coding that creates this specific stone so that we don't just have one big stone in the world. The fact is we have multiple stones and they're in different places and people have stone collections because not all stones are the same, right? So at, with within the 10 utterances of creation, there's the coding for all existence, for every existence and each thing in its own unique way.